coming to you live from Novosibirsk, Siberia, and from Westchester County. Welcome back to Conduct Detrimental. I'm Dan Wallach. Joining me, as always, is, well, not as always, I've missed a few episodes, but joining me is my co-host, Dan Lust. How are you doing, Dan? I'm good, Dan. You know, listen, I, I like being a legal matchmaker online, but that doesn't mean I'm going to leave the podcast, even if Patty Stanger might want to recruit me to her um, matchmaking army. But we had a, a lot of fun this week. And it's fun, Dan, giving back to uh, law students and connecting lawyers mm-hmm. with law students, especially when the market is, is really tough like that. Sure, sure. We You've done a really good job at building a really good network and a deep bench, at least for us, on Conduct Detrimental as well. I mean, we're, we're bringing aboard, you know, Mike, Taryn, we got a couple of new, new people. So it's really exciting that we've become this, you know, team that can really bring a lot of different elements to the podcast. But this week, we go back to basics with our mystery guest. And, you know, we've done a lot of the episodes where it's been you, I, Mike, uh, Taryn, just you know, talking about some of the current legal issues in sports. But today, our episode will focus on our interview subject. So, you know, can you can you tell the audience who our special guest is? Special guest, because we uh, teasing it a little bit online. Special guest is none other than ESPN's Brian Windhorst. That would have been my guess. I was going to guess Brian Windhorst. I should have. I should have gone with my instinct. It's exciting to have Brian. I mean, he's he's one of the preeminent NBA columnists. I've been following his work going all the way back to Cleveland, uh, and his career trajectory has been really exciting. You know, following along LeBron James's path, and then he's become a you know national reporter at ESPN. You know, he's one of the one of the real like you know great writers out there that cover you know the sport that we love. And to get him on this podcast is a real thrill, and I'm looking forward to talking to him. Just a little bit about Brian, because um, if you're an, if you're an NBA fan, you know who Brian Windhorst is. But just about his path, and uh, you know, just telling in a week where people, you know, we're getting close to graduation for law students and people trying to figure out their life. Brian basically, as a we'll say, as a 25 year old got a job at the uh, Akron Beacon Journal over and he was the beat reporter for the Cleveland Cavaliers. I'm sure that's a thankless job, right? This is in 2003. He worked there for really 2008 for five years. And then he began to work for another Cleveland newspaper, The Plain Dealer. And that's actually kind of when I heard of Brian. There was a period of time and people will now remember it, but it wasn't really that normal for superstars to move from team to team. Now that's the main thing we care about, right? Where Bradley Beal is going to get traded to, where James Harden's going. That's front page news. But when LeBron James was kind of saying, hey, I might leave my hometown Cleveland Cavaliers where I grew up in Ohio and I might leave to go to another team. That was front page news. And anyone that had an in to LeBron James all of a sudden became, I don't know, the the hottest commodity in reporting. So Brian, you know, he'll talk about this in the podcast. He's going to talk about seeing trends ahead of time. And Brian's very good at that. So maybe in another life, Brian would have been, you know, working in the stock market or, or seeing trends. But Brian really aligned himself with this LeBron James story. So he was the Cleveland Cavaliers beat reporter, but he was really only reporting about what LeBron James was thinking. So, you know, ESPN would bring him on, Cleveland Plains dealer, Brian Windhorst. And I kept seeing this guy who was in his 20s talking about LeBron. He was on every network. And then, uh, you know, the story goes, LeBron decided to have the decision. LeBron went to Miami. And the same year, 2010, when the decision was recorded, guess where Brian went to work? ESPN. And now Brian, you know, he has close to a million followers across social media. Brian is an A-list guy because he saw the trend ahead of time. The player empowerment was happening. So he aligned himself with LeBron. And he's kind of got brought up with LeBron into this era. And now, Dan, just as a final note, like at one point, Brian was a Le- the LeBron guy. And you thought about Brian as being just, you know, associated with LeBron James. Now, Brian has pivoted to just being an all-around NBA A-list top, top reporter. And that's a credit to Brian. You always 
kind of want to reinvent yourself and take yourself to that next level. And that's really what, what Brian was able to successfully do over these past 10 years. A little bit of luck goes a long way. Not every reporter can be fortunate enough to be covering the games, the high school games of LeBron James. That, that's like winning the journalism lottery, being cast into a situation where the you know, next Michael Jordan is basically you know, your beat. And you know, there are reporters all over the country who are covering games that uh, aren't anywhere near the stratosphere of players like that. But Brian made the most of it and leveraged that into a powerhouse NBA career. But of course, it started, you know, by being associated and having the, you know, good fortune of working in a market where a young up and coming, you know, player by the name of LeBron James got his start. And that's not, that's not everybody's story, but he recognized it and he took full advantage of his talents and saw the trend and became, he went from an, a, a local reporter to a national reporter. And if, if you were to name, you know, three, four NBA, you know, reporters, the top people, he, he's, he's one of the names you think of. He's that good. But luckily, you know, LeBron James happened to be in Akron at the time that, that, that he got his, his start as a journalist. And that certainly didn't hurt. Brian, I'm sure we'll say this, and Dan, you and I will say this. It's you got to be what's what's the expression? You better you'd rather be lucky than good, right? That's mm-hmm. the same thing. And like when I play poker, right? You know, He's both I, lucky and good. Let's say I don't I don't want right. to take anything. No, away no, from I, him. I don't mean I don't mean for Brian's purposes, but I just mean in life. Like you know, I consider myself a good poker player. Sometimes I don't make the right play, and sometimes I I still cash out because I got very lucky. So yeah. you have to be good. You have to put the work in. But getting in this industry is also a little bit of luck. You have to kind of get lucky in that sense. So we wanted to get into a couple topics with Brian. Brian has this great piece out right now on ESPN. I implore everyone to check it out about uh, NBA Top Shot. So we've heard a lot of the news about Bitcoin, or I'm going to probably mispronounce it, but I think it's, I call it Dogecoin, not Dogcoin. But uh, cryptocurrency really making its waves. And there's a whole separate legal issue about securities regulations and market manipulation. And now all of a sudden, in this last month or so, we have NBA Top Shot, which is a separate form of blockchain and we'll say NBA's version of cryptocurrency that Brian is kind of pulling the, the curtain behind. So as much as the sports card market is, is booming, right? And Darren Novell, friend of the podcast, is tweeting about it. This market of uh, NBA Top Shot has really done, I think it's like 50 million in transactions in a year. So Definitely interesting. You know, we, we spoke to Brian about how to fix the tanking problem in the NBA and how to, you know, distrust the process business. And then a little bit of how college name, image, and likeness is going to impact the NBA for the next couple of years. So I don't know. I think we, we got a lot in. Obviously, uh, we saved time at the end to talk a little bit, Brian, about his career path, a little bit that we mentioned. So, Dan, before we before we bring it over to Brian, do you know how I was able to get Brian Winhorst to do our, our lovely podcast? Yeah, I was surprised. I didn't even know that you knew him. I mean, I talked to him a couple of times back in 2017. And that was a great get. What did you have to do? What did you have to offer Brian to get him to appear on our pro- on our podcast? I know Brian from my Kevin Durant saga back in the day. So I kind of oh. was a Kevin Durant guy. He was a LeBron guy. So I was speaking to him about career advice and I didn't ask him really for anything. So I've, you know, I've had Brian in Brian's contact for about a year. I never really asked him for anything just to, to drop on his radar. But damn, I reached out to him this past week. And I told him, you know, I'm not sure if you knew I had a podcast, but I said, I host this lovely podcast with fellow sports lawyer, Dan Wallach. Would you be willing to go on? And he said, I know Dan. I've known Dan dating back a couple of years. I'll come on the podcast in one condition. And I said, what's the condition? And he goes, you have to explain to me why Dan Wallach is in Siberia right now. That's actually true. That's 100% true. I mean, maybe you want to tell us why you've been in Siberia. I don't think you've actually explained on the podcast why you've been in Siberia. 
Yeah, I don't even know why I'm in Siberia. Uh, no, the truth is, truth is, uh, I was looking for a, a winter, you know, getaway, a little vacation, you know, to a you're like nice ball. You're in the climate. summer months over there. You're warmer than half the country right now. It's warmer in Siberia right now than it is where Brian is located in, in Omaha, Nebraska. He actually pointed that, that out to me a couple of days. And the reason I'm in Siberia is that my wife, Natalia, hails from the capital of Siberia, which is Novosibirsk. And we decided to take a trip to visit her family in uh, December, January. And I think with the, you know, stay at home and the, the, all, the, all the related consequences from the pandemic and everybody's working virtually, I don't think it really matters, you know, where, where at least in my practice, I could work from anywhere. So we just decided to take a nice extended jaunt over to, uh, over to Nova Siberia, Siberia. And in our backyard, we have an outdoor you know, ice hockey rink. So doesn't get better than that. We've had a lot of fun in the snow and in the and and taking our you know showing our you know our poodle. Uh, we we actually we travel with our poodle. Ted Cruz leaves his poodle at home. Natalia and I traveled with with our poodle, and uh, we've had a lot of fun with our dog in the snow and in the winter. And that's the reason I'm in Siberia. So I wouldn't say it's a once in a lifetime trip, but how often can you get a chance to spend? two to three months in a, in a wonderful place like this. So, you know, it's, it's posed some, some challenges with internet connections and, you know, a couple of time, you know, time zone problems. But other than that, it's, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun. So it's not as exotic and mysterious as it sounds. It's just basically visiting our in-laws or my in-laws. That video you took with your dog playing goalie, that was in your backyard? Yep. That's in my backyard. He has a save based on the videos that have been, uh, you know, disseminated. His save percentage is only, you know, 500. Um, you know, he, had, he had that great save and then he ran away with the puck. And then the last video I uploaded, uh, he just watched the puck go over the red line. So we're going to have to work on his goaltending technique. He may have to adopt the butterfly style. I remember back in the day, there was a, the Mighty Ducks movie. There was Julie the cat. She was the goalie. She'd make these quick glove saves. So they say, like, if you're a good goalie, you have good cat reflexes. I've never really heard of like having dog reflexes. So like maybe you need to invest in another pet. But the poodle brings incredible reflexes and athleticism to the position. Does? Well, uh, you know, I, you know, I have a golden doodle. I have a mini golden doodle. Yeah, I saw him in the background. Oh, here she's, she's hiding over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you may have to add her to the closing credits because at different junctures during the interview we had with Brian, I could see the poodle over your left shoulder. Or, or your dog over your left shoulder. Not everybody has a poodle, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, it is what it is. But Dan, with that being said, I think it's time to hop into the interview. I don't want to hold these, all these people in suspense over here. That said, we will kick it over to Brian Windhorst. Brian, welcome to Conduct Detrimental. We're really Thank privileged you. to have you join us today for a very special episode we've been teasing. So welcome to our podcast. Hey, you guys are experts at what you do. I uh, rely, on, uh, rely on your guys' work, so I'm happy to be here. You know, you and I met a couple of years ago, back in the days when sports betting was largely illegal across the country, <laughs> with the exception of Nevada. I guess I got onto your radar back in December of 2017 when you made your initial foray, I guess, in writing about what the future of legalized sports betting would, would mean for the NBA and how it would change the NBA. So now, you know, we haven't talked in three years or so. How has sports betting affected the NBA from your lens going back to the, I guess, the day PASPA was overturned? Yeah, well, I mean, we knew that the case was coming. I can't remember if the case was argued yet, but when, when we talked. Right around that time, it was, it was December of 2017. I think you spoke to me like right after the oral argument. Yeah. Or right around that time. I remember. Yeah, I mean, 
Yeah, I'm not a legal scholar by any stretch, but if you listened to the oral arguments in that case, it seemed like it was pretty clear that the justices were leaning towards uh, striking down PAPSA and changing the sports betting landscape. And uh, if you were really paying attention to it like you were, um, you, you know, you were already well known in that then very small industry that is growing by the week. I really wanted to to have some experts to educate me. And, um, you know, at ESPN, I'm sometimes uh, a victim of being too early on things where I maybe not write and cover them too early in terms of the industry, but write about them more, maybe sooner than the readers or my bosses are ready for them. You know, like I wrote my first article about the NBA bubble like last April and nobody was even thinking about the bubble. I don't even think the story was was hmm. really all that well read. So I'm sort of a victim of looking ahead a little bit. It would be, be better if I like, you know, was ahead on like, you know, stocks. I would, you know, I wouldn't need the, the job. But um oh, well, by, by the way, Brian, you know, for all of my legal for all of my legal expertise and, and you, you hit the nail on the head from the from the way the justices were conducting the questioning, it seemed pretty obvious PASPA was going to be overturned. And we could have gone into the stock market at that point and you know, just, I, it was clear as day that PASPA was going to be overturned. Can you imagine investing a little bit in the public gaming stocks at that time that were public and just letting it ride over the next three, three and a half years? You'd be a millionaire just from yeah. a, you know, a nominal investment. So uh, I feel as if I missed the boat on getting in at sort of the, the ground level of this, you know, stock betting or, you know, uh, the sports betting stock market bubble. Dan, if I, if I can just jump in quick, Brian uh, is alluding to something that he might be ahead of the curve on and, and maybe an opportunity for us all to get ahead of something before this industry fully booms. So Brian, uh, Part of the reason we wanted to have you on, you just wrote a fantastic piece on NBA Top Shot, which um, I know is coming onto a lot of people's radars because of the, the work that you did. And I, and I do want to give you a little credit. The article that you wrote back in April on the bubble, like we read it because there was a lot of interesting liability issues in there. And there was mm. interesting stuff on coach age discrimination about guys not being able For to sure. be silence. So that stuff we ate up as lawyers. So I don't know if it was so well read in the full sphere, but for lawyers, I, I know that that made its rounds in our circles. So don't don't sell yourself short. That was a very good piece. But I guess, uh, Brian, we, we want to have you on here. You know, Dan was at, at the head of the sports betting movement, you know, at this point, maybe uh, eight, eight, nine years ago. But this Top Shot movement, I mean, this is it's really a year in the making. So for those that don't know, um, Brian, you want to fill us in about what you kind of see of, of this Top Shot market, you know, blockchain changing NBA and, and the sports kind of investment market? Yeah, I mean, you guys are well aware. I mean, and I'm sure anybody listens to this podcast. I mean, your audience is probably a little more savvy than the general audience. So you, you're all aware that the memorabilia market has been insane during the pandemic. And, you know, you could probably get on an, an economist and a sociologist to try to explain that. And this is sort of an intersection of fortune because this device, I don't even know what to call it, this digital entity has been in the works for over a year. I mean, they released it last year during the finals. Idea, the idea was to release it when it would get publicity, but I don't remember it at all in October. I really didn't even hear about it until early January. So uh, the NBA about three years ago really felt like there was opportunities in the blockchain space. So I am not an expert at all on blockchain. I, what I do know, it, I can just say, and I apologize to people out there who know more than me, and, and you'll slap your head and say, boy, this guy is a, a neophyte nincompoop. It's essentially a, a digital online ledger that exists decentralized. So, you know, it, it's not controlled by a government or a company. 
And so in a way, it's sort of you know, democratic or, you know, in, it's independent. And that platform enables business to be operated in different ways. And so, you know, the NBA licenses all kinds of stuff, guys. They license paint, the official paint of the NBA, the official deodorant of the NBA, the official whatever of the NBA. Uh, you know, they do these, some of these deals, they've, they've had memorabilia deals with tops. I, I don't know when the first tops NBA set, probably before I was born, probably in the 70s, 60s. I mean, they, they, they may have been doing de- licensing deals with sport car companies for 40, 50 years. So this was different though. They, they wanted to do a memorabilia deal on the blockchain and on the blockchain, meaning not tangible, not in existence, you know, in existence only, you know, in a digital form. And they made a deal with this company and not just the NBA, the Players Association too, because the Players Association has name and likeness deals. And that's a whole thing. The Players Association has its own name and likeness entity now called Think 450. That's another podcast for another day. They sat at the table together and interviewed a whole bunch of these companies. All these companies came to the NBA in late 2017 2018 and made presentations. Here's why we should, you know, you should go into business with us and let give us your licensing deal for this blockchain entity. And the company they picked was this uh, Canadian company based in Vancouver called Dapper Labs. And the reason they picked them was because they had done one digital memorabilia, digital collectible, which was photographs, digital photographs of cats. Great business, online cat, oh. <laughs> especially for for lawyers nowadays. Lawyer cats are, are making it big right now. Your your overhead is relatively low, although actually not at all. And so those were called crypto kitties, and they were extraordinarily popular for a small piece of the population. I mean, it wasn't like it took the world by storm, but it, they were hot at the time. And so you know, it wasn't like they had a list of companies that had all these. They picked they picked the company who had done one of them, one. And so they did the deal in um, in early 2019, announced it in mid 2019, and they spent a year on the on the rollout. And um, so what it is is it is the NBA licenses video clips to Dapper Labs, and Dapper Labs sells these video clips in little packages. And so for each player, and they and they sell. I think they have them for every player. I don't know if they're all on sale yet, but I, you know, the, the idea is that every player would have one or the majority of players would have one. And they are little 8, 10, 13 second clips. And it could be a shot. It could be a pass. It could be a block. It could be a steal. And they sell them. They sell them in, in little packs where you, you know, digitally open them and you see what's in there. And they're, they're called moments. And, you know, it's an interesting idea. Uh, you know, if you had told me this four months ago, I said, okay, I mean, I, I, I'm going to not be a stick in the mud. I'm going to try to be Mr. 2021. I'm not going to look at this sideways and, and say that it doesn't make sense. I mean, it doesn't make sense that a, a thin piece of cardboard is worth $5 million with Mickey Mantle rookie card just sold for. It only makes sense if people value it that that, and we all value it. We all value paper currency is what's printed on the currency. It's all just some, it's all just a confidence game. So I, I recognize that, it, okay, I, I guess some people would be interested in this. What I didn't understand and didn't foresee and had to try to understand was that this was going to just become a, a, a huge market for, for speculation and investment. And money has poured in. The day my story came out, they did $7 million in sales just that day. And I haven't checked it this morning, but I think they were they were passing eighty million dollars in sales in the last forty-five days. So of that, um, of that seven million, Brian, six million came between Dan and I. So that's, that's <laughs> good for you. I hope you can um, resell. How much? How much of that goes to the NBA? Do you do you do you know the terms of the the revenue share or the licensing deal? So I can get a sense of how much of this filters to the teams and then ultimately and directly down to the players as basketball-related income. 
Daniel, it's a great question. I don't know the answer, you know, and, and that's a private contract. So while the numbers on the blockchain, you know, the reason why it's the reason why collectors are so interested in it uh, is because unlike with a card, like I don't know if you guys collected sports cards when you were kids or collect them today. But when a card is, you know, when you open a, a package of tops or even if you went to a card show and you bought a specific card that you valued, you really didn't know how many of those cards existed. I mean, you thought that this card was valuable and rare, but, you know, then eBay comes along, you know, in the 90s and a card that you thought was really valuable, there's tens of thousands of them actually available. <laughs> it's like, well, this card may be interesting, but it's not really that rare and not really that valuable. The blockchain enables the users to see exactly how many cards have been created exactly what they've all sold for. So, you know, if I if I sell a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card to my friend, you know, for a couple hundred dollars, I don't know that one maybe has just sold for 3000 in, you know, Hawaii or Japan. I don't know what the market is. I mean, there's some for the highest, highest end, you know, but you don't really have a great idea for the market, even within platforms. One might sell on eBay for this, one might sell on another site for that. In this case, because it's a blockchain, everybody can see what cards have been created, what they've all sold for. And the real interesting thing is that the secondary market, the resale is for the most part takes place within Dapper Labs environment. You can do it off platform, but there's some risk involved with it. So nobody really is. And so Dapper can charge royalties. So the way I put it in my story is the NBA in, in partnership can be both the Picasso and the Sotheby's. They, I think it's depending on the size of the transaction, it's five or 10%. And you may say, well, that's not that big of a deal. But if this gets to volume where it gets to, you know, billions of dollars in sales, that the idea that you could participate in secondary market sales as a, as an owner of intellectual property, what the NBA and the players union are, it's extremely exciting to them. So you're getting all the way back to where you started this question, which is how much do they get? I don't know the terms of the deal. And right now, even as I said, it's probably $80 million in the last you know month and a half. It's still probably just a real fraction, really fraction of that. But they're more excited about the long term and what this could be if this catches on and is not just a fad. I think, you know, on that, I mean, I, uh, I know the story came out a couple of weeks ago. Someone purchased a LeBron uh, moment. I think it was like 70 grand. And it's probably an interesting investment, right? This technology has only been around a year. I know they're, they're in talks or they're, I don't know how, how those progress, but with UFC to do their own version of that deal. You know, the, the question, and I think where this ties into our, our legal background, I heard something like LaMelo, you know, LaMelo moments are like, you know, going up in prices, right? Because people, people view maybe he's the next rookie of the year. Maybe he's the next big thing. Right. You know, as someone that has researched the sports card market, there's a version of this that goes on at like tops and all these companies now with these, there's a select amount of like orange foil cards or black foil cards. So, you know, there's right. one of five or there's one of that's 10. right. So I, I think we, you know, people in that industry could see something like this coming, right. That you could follow the market. The problem is, I don't know. And maybe it's a, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but with this whole Robin hood, you know, controversy that occurred a couple of weeks ago, we're seeing some holes where a market could be manipulated in a, in a way that's maybe good, maybe bad, but, but the SEC can kind of step in and try to regulate that, right? There's laws right. that come into place and try to curtail um, either good or bad inflation or, or deflation. Do you foresee, Brian, any type of issues right now? Like this is a private industry, right? It's not regulated by the open markets. The top shot could fall into some problems because it could be manipulated in, in some way, good or like, you know, for example, right? I'm making this up. This is not a, a real, but like, you know, the, you know, the Aaron Baines fan club on Twitter, right? Like those guys are right. very vocal, right? Let's right. say they just wanted to pump up Aaron Baines stock and they could do it in a fungible way. 
Do you see that potentially being an issue with, with, in, a, in a non-regulated market like this is? Yeah, Dan, it's a great question for sure. So, you know, you see a, a moment, a video clip sell for $100,000. You see who the two users are. Some of the users put their names right on there. I mean, I was able, the guy who bought the, you know, the story that I wrote, I wrote about this guy who paid $100,000 for a Zion Williamson blocked shot um, highlight. Was it Dan Wallach? <laughs> I, if, if it was, I mean, what are you doing on this podcast? You're, you got that kind of money to throw around. I mean, I was, able to, I was able to track him down very simply. His name is right on the user account. But obviously, they've got all these users and they have all these usernames. I mean, I could create user one and sell the user two, sell them myself. Now, granted, I'd have to pay a fee, transaction fee. I'd lose some money in the transaction. But I, if I wanted to take this card and all of a sudden increase its value... I could just sell them myself. You know, it's a manipulation of the market. And, you know, I've talked to collectors about this and the collectors say, absolutely, that is 100% true. But that same risk of fraud exists in the sports card market as well. You know, we don't know how that works. And so, yeah. And, you know, so you say to yourself, well, does the NBA bear any, you know, risk here? Because they're, you know, they're a, a partner and they're, they're fans, you know, are going do this can, can they say you know we'll back this up and you know the nba's position is this is just we are licensor and licensee just like we are with upper deck or panini like we have been for decades and you know it's you, you know you operate at your own risk so yeah that's a that's a real concern especially because all of it exists within the dapper labs environment and so um I don't know. The company has only been around a few years. I don't know. But I will say this. They're, it, it, reportedly, I mean, this is not my reporting, but reportedly they're close to, to doing a $250 million raise, which is going to value them at $2 billion. I would assume, but I, maybe I shouldn't, that those companies are vetting as much as they can. And I think they're going to use that money to go out and do deals with UFC. And you know, I'm sure they'll chase the NFL and they'll chase... Uh, other sports leagues to try to do this. But when I talked to the NBA about this, they said they see this as a long-term partnership that, you know, and, and one of the things that the NBA mentioned to me is the, look, we've got this giant archive of these video moments that we can sell. And so you start to think about what about if they did the Michael Jordan, the shot, like what if they sold one out of, you know, if they made five of them, you know, they could auction those for who knows, or they could go in a whole other route. And like, instead of auctioning just, you know, clips of the, of the games, they could auction clips of guys arriving in their arrival fashion show clips. So being drafted, you know, on the, yeah. on the podium. Right? But, but your point of like, from a legal point, I mean, yeah, it's, it's the wild, wild west. And, you know, again, it's a Canadian company. I don't know like what the what the rules of the of the road are on like the transactions. I don't know where it's like registered and based or where the servers are. It's definitely a risk and it's definitely manipulatable. The reason that the that the collectors say that they believe this is the future and granted, you know, millions of people collect sports cards. Right now it's just tens of thousands that are doing this. So it's still a slice of the market. But when you have a card and you want to sell it for any meaningful amount, you have to get the card rated by a third-party agency. Right, PSA right. is the I right. believe. That's a big one. So you gotta you gotta ship it off. So you gotta trust the UPS or FedEx or, or the mail. And then you have to trust the subjective guy who's you know, granted they're professionals, but you gotta, you know, I you hear stories about people who send them off one day and they get rated an eight break them out of the pack, send it back again, they get rated to nine. So then you got to ship back to you. And then when you do the transaction, you know, it would sell, you got to worry about if you're buying, you got to worry about there being fraud or whatever. So this is all, 
exists all digitally and it's all right there on the blockchain. So there, it removes the friction. And that's why people are investing in it. The other thing is when I talk to the people at Dapper Labs, especially the CEO, the CEO of the company, by the way, he's a crypto currency and crypto expert. He doesn't- also, He's also a cat guy. Yes, he loves cats, apparently. He, I mean, he doesn't really know that much about the NBA. But you know, the thing that he talked about with me was when he learned about how people were selling fractions of cards and fractions of like shoes. So, you know, there's a huge secondary market for Nikes, Nike shoes, uh, Jordans and what have you. And there are people who, you know, groups of people who own, you know, a group of investors who may own a pair of shoes and they may never actually see the shoes with their own eyes. And there are services where cards are just kept in vaults. They basically act like banks and, and a group of people will sell a card to another group of people and the ownership will transfer, but the card will stay in the vault. Mm -hmm. They never actually see. So people own like slices of a piece of cardboard that they'll never physically hold. I saw there's a company called Rally. And I, I mean, I, I, some people are like, no, duh, you idiot. I mean, of course, but I'm, I'm, I'm such a neophyte in this. There's a company called Rally that sells a whole bunch of stuff like this. But last week they announced that they are going to sell a piece of the court from Kobe Bryant's last game that has his number on it. I believe it was number eight because they had an eight and a 24 and Kobe signed it that night, signed the court. And so they have those squares with his number on it. They're not going to chop it up. They're just going to hold it, I assume, in their vault and they're going to sell shares of it to fans. I think it was, I can't remember the amount of money that it was going to be. You know, I don't remember if it was $8 or $24 or whatever it was. And so you're going to, and by the way, that'll sell out. So people are going to buy shares of a piece of memorabilia that they will never touch. And so that sort of market has already existed. Mm -hmm. So he was just saying it's already, there's already sort of this people are, these people are already investing in stuff like this. So why shouldn't we create this, make a deal with the NBA and create this? And, and I have to say, it's not the worst idea I've ever heard. Brian, you know, we focus so much on the business of the NBA, sports betting, and, you know, there's these digital, you know, vid videos. I want to talk about the quality of the game. You know, I've been, a, I've been a fan of the NBA going back to 1970. I think it's probably half a century in the game. I, I've seen the evolution of, you know, tanking uh, mm -hmm. reach epic proportions. You've had a, a real close view of LeBron James' career, you know, going back to when you covered him in high school. He's changed the fortunes of four NBA franchises, the Cavaliers <laughs> twice, yeah. the, the Heat, and the Lakers. Is there too much of a temptation? Uh, obviously, the answer is yes, but what can be done to sort of eliminate the incentives for teams not to give it their all? Because the current system really leaves a lot of fans almost rooting for their teams to not make the playoffs, to try to aggregate some you know, um, you know, high draft picks to eventually land the next LeBron James. Has this led to a decline in sort of the competitive integrity uh, and competitive balance in the league when teams aren't giving it their best shot? Well, Daniel, this has been going on for a long time and it's just the nature of the game of basketball because in, in a five-man game, one player can change so, so much. And so when that player comes along, it's, I mean, getting LeBron James, getting the LeBron James of a, of a draft, you know, and it's so rare. It's, it's, a, it's a huge difference maker. I mean, the Cleveland Cavaliers, I'll just put you this way. The Cleveland Cavaliers haven't won a playoff series 
without LeBron James on their roster since 1993. 1993 was the last time they won a playoff series without LeBron on their roster. So, you know, the thing about it is, is that as sports leagues have matured and general managing has become more from sort of an intuitive role into an analytic role, where mm-hmm. guys try to find edges, whether that's through math or through strategy, mm-hmm. the, the, the executives in the NBA identified that, you know, a, a, way to, a way to really improve is to get the highest draft pick possible. And it's the same kind of thinking that led famously in um, the, the book Moneyball and Billy Bean became well known for this. He realized that other teams didn't value players who walked a lot. And it wasn't that he thought that walks were the greatest thing in the history of the game, but he didn't have much money to spend. And he realized he could buy players and acquire players who could get on base a lot. And so he, that's what the players he got. The NBA, Sam Hinkie, the general manager of the 76ers for a while, personified this, but it was done by a lot of teams. They, they looked at the lay of the land and they were like, this is the way to go. You know, tank, get, get a high draft pick several years in a row. That's your best chance of getting players. And in a vacuum, like I can't blame them for it, you know? And so the league has tried to push back against this by changing the lottery odds and flattening them out a little bit, but it's really a philosophy. It's really a philosophy thing. So like recently in the NBA, the New York Knicks traded for Derrick Rose and a lot of people celebrated that trade. And they said, oh, the Knicks are trying to make the playoffs. They went out and got this, uh, you know, well-known point guard, uh, who has played for Tom Thibodeau, the coach, in two other places. Great move by the Knicks. Great move. Uh, terrific. They gave up a second-round pick for him. Great move. There were other players who were like, whew, that wasn't such a good idea because, you know, this increases the chances, the Knicks' chances of making the playoffs. And mm-hmm. being sixth or seventh best team it doesn't really help you. But if you miss the playoffs and you can get a high lottery pick in a year where there's a great draft like this year is supposed to be, that may advance you further. And that's really the, the, uh, the rub on fan on, on fandom. And uh, you know, it's not good for the league to do it, that to, to, to have a team lose, but it may be good for the teams. And it's, that's a real 2021 <laughs> pro sports I, I, dilemma. Listen, I've fallen into that negative thinking too. You know, I'm a, I'm a Knicks fan and I'm a Rangers fan. I don't root for them to win the games because I know that at best, they're sort of a middle of the pack. Maybe they'll inch into the playoffs, Knicks or Rangers. But for, to, to what end? To what end? Just to get uh, knocked out in the first round, and then you lose the opportunity and uh, to draft a, you know the next you know great player. And, and I don't recall this being as rampant throughout the 1970s and early no. 1980s before Hakeem Olajuwon came along. And during those years, the high draft choices were much more reliable. Yeah, you, you had, you know, the Larry Bird, you know, Michael Ray Richardson, Bernard King, you know, Marcus Johnson. You had real, you had like bona fide, you know, players that you could project as future NBA stars. Now it's a crapshoot almost because you're drafting one and done players 18, 19 years old, they're, they're not as easily projectable and teams are still tanking. And w- when you take a significant part of your fan base rooting against the interest of winning just to solidify a draft slot, I think that's a byproduct of you know the salary cap and the lottery process working hand in hand to, to kind of disincentivize teams from trying to win and maybe turning off significant parts of their fan base. Because now I find myself not necessarily rooting for my teams to win. Yeah. So, and Sam Hankey would say, yeah, you can't rely on one player. So that's why you have to do it several years in a row. 
<laughs> that's why you have to do a three-year a three-year tank or whatever because you have to get you have to get three bites at the apple um really it's a product of a, a multiple things it's a, a more strategic and analytic uh, front offices and it's also a product of the era that we are in right now, which is uh, the clustering of superstar players. Um, superstar players have taken control of their careers and, and enforced their way, use their power to, to, to cluster on teams. And so this is a very basic concept, but yet as a driving force, which is that there's only three ways to get players. You can trade for them, you can draft them, and you can sign them. Well, if, if you, you can't always make trades because um, it requires two to tango and some players are not available. And then when some players are available, there's a bidding war and you, you may be out of position. So it's hard to do trades, especially if a player isn't forcing his trade to your team. Uh, so signing players is generally been reserved for big markets. It's eluded the Knicks, which is a longer conversation, but it's eluded the Knicks. They haven't been able to take advantage of that. So the draft is your best opportunity that's controllable. And that is why teams have gone down that path because they don't feel that they can stand on equal footing on trades and signings. And that is even why when there are trade star player trades that have happened that in recent years, that teams don't even prioritize getting players back for stars. They want draft picks back for stars. Um, we've seen a series of trades over the last four or five years where there's been three and four draft picks traded in a trade. And then, and then other years where they, um, have the right to swap draft picks with the team to get a higher pick. And that is the basis of trades. And the reason is because those draft picks represent opportunities to draft players or currency to go out and trade for, for players when there comes time for a bidding war. And so it, it re really, Daniel, it really is an indication of the commoditization of that has happened with players. And I will say this is my 18th year covering the NBA. When I first started covering the NBA, um, the average fan did not know the basics of the salary cap. The average fan was focused on tonight's game. And I don't know if it's the uh, proliferation of fantasy sports, both daily fantasy and, and your teams. I don't know if it's the proliferation of the internet so that people can read different parts of coverages. You're not relying only on your local beat writer who just you know, covered sprained ankles and, you know, what the coach said after the game. I, I think it's a combination of all of these, but the fan has also become way, way, way more sophisticated in the way they view the league. And so you're talking about you as a, as a Knicks fan, evaluating the team completely differently on the final score. Whereas in 1987, you probably just looked at it as the final score, maybe even 2007, you just looked at it as a final score. It is an evolution of the nature of fandom and the nature of the NBA. And quite frankly, for somebody in my job who covers way more than the, the orange ball going through the orange ring, it's been terrific because it enables me to cover and write about things that are way, way on a different level. And it has elevated the overall intelligence of the fan. And I'm very thankful for that, even if it presents these conundrums that get to the basic part of competition. Brian, you mentioned something, I, I flagged it when you said commoditization of players. So, you know, we, we have a, just in a brief amount of time, I wanted to make just sure we, we fit in your thoughts on this. I think no more other place than college basketball are we feeling, you know, maybe a shift in the landscape from name, image, and likeness rights kind of changing. So basketball is really the only sport where guys don't really have to go to college anymore to make it to the pros and make millions of dollars. 
you know, I mentioned LaMelo Ball earlier, RJ Hampton, even going back, you know, Dan and I's Nick fandom with Brandon Jennings years ago, going to Europe and kind of yeah. dropping in the draft and being available. Whereas maybe in a different world, right, he would have probably been the first overall pick in the draft had he not gone to Europe. So I, I want to get your, your thoughts, right? I think in, in college basketball, at least, the fact that there is no way to pay players, you're getting some top talent go directly into the G League and get paid six figures, low six figures, but still some amount of money. And meanwhile, they're kind of buying themselves and cashing them out out of a world of the NCAA where we don't really know what players, if they can get paid, right, when that's going to happen and how much they get paid. Because we keep hearing terms like, you know, the NCAA is going to place guardrails in front of players to make them not resemble pros. So to me and Dan as lawyers, we're hearing terms like guardrails and not wanting to resemble pros. And that realistically could be a cap of $10,000 or $20,000. So I think, you know, players are kind of cashing themselves out. They're going to play overseas and it's kind of helped LaMelo, right? I think the jury's still out on if it helped RJ Hampton. But Brian, what, what are your overall thoughts on how name, image, and likeness is kind of uh, shaping the NBA at that level? I think it's been maybe 12 or 13 years ago, the NBA imposed an age limit. And so there was this one year that the top players would have. And for a long time, they spent it at college. They would go to Duke for a year. They would go to Kentucky for a year, UCLA, and then they would move on. In the last five years, there's been an effort to commoditize that year. And you mentioned Brendan Jennings. That's even longer than five years ago. But occasionally a player would go to China or to, to Europe. Brandon Jennings played in Italy. But Australia, the Australian league, the NBL there, which is a very progressive league, they're actually starting a bubble in Melbourne uh, Melbourne uh, this week um, where they're creating a bubble down there where fans are going to be able to come to the game. They're getting 10 to 15,000 fans. It's actually pretty smart. They decided that they were going to off start offering guys, offering these, um, these American teenagers a bunch of money for this one year. And in some cases, like they were some of the highest paid players in their whole league. And the NBA were like, look, the NBA kind of declared war on the NC. I mean, war is a strong word, but you know, that is valuable. That year is valuable. And there are ways to, 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 you know, to be quite frank, profit off of it, because that's what the colleges have been doing. And the players are like, you know, forget this. If someone's going to profit off this, I got to, I got to get in on this, whether that means going to China or that means going to Australia. And the NBA was like, look, we've got to take advantage of this. This is an op, this is a lane for us to take advantage of. And so, there is right now, there is a G League bubble happening in, in Orlando. And I'm telling you guys, that G League bubble is only in existence because there's this team of 18-year-olds that's based in, in L.A. but won't play in L.A. I mean, if that team of 18-year-olds wasn't playing, I'm not sure they would even have a G League this year. Now, maybe someone from the league office would come onto this call and shake their finger at me and say, how dare you? But I feel pretty confident about it. And they spent several million dollars on this collection of young guys who are going to come into this draft. And, you know, why is the NBA doing this? Are they doing it out of the goodness of their hearts? No, they're doing it because they want to take that corner away from the NCAA, away from Australia, who was trying to take it and China, who was trying to take it. And so that they can have a little one year league where they can take advantage of these guys and, sell media rights for it so that maybe next year Amazon buys it or uh, an over the air company buys it and puts it on television and it's another product. And then not only are you monetizing it, basically getting in on the NCAA's monopoly that existed, but uh, also promoting players who are coming to your league, which the, you know, the NBA for years sort of said, well, we're, you know, we, we have a, a partnership with the NCAA because, you know, they have the NCAA tournament and, and they showcase these guys who are going to come to the NBA. They make the, they make Zion Williamson a household name before he even comes to the NBA. Well, that's not untrue. Yes, that does happen. But why should Duke profit 
Why should the NCAA profit off all of that? Why can't they get in on this action? And that's what they're that's what they're essentially trying to do. They actually spent a couple of years researching whether they should go the European soccer route where they would create academies and basically take these kids throughout high school and have them play against each other and put them on television. But I did some stories on this back then. And they they when they researched it, they were like, you know what, we don't really want to get involved in the in the edu being worried about making sure these kids go to class and the education. So they they still they run academies and they're part they run academies in 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 China, in in Africa, um, in India, um, in other parts of the world. They had one in Australia for a while, but I think it's closed. They decided they didn't want to do that. So they basically they're trying to cash in on this on this year of these guys. Now maybe the age limit goes away, maybe the age limit goes away and they still have guys who are not ready for the NBA and they go to this league. But every time the NCAA throws up another guardrail to use that term that makes getting the image and likeness, getting their market value harder. I think the NBA just smiles wider because they're like, fine, we'll welcome those kids into our league right now playing for this team that's based in uh, San Francisco called, uh, it's actually not LA, I said it's LA, it's based in San Francisco area called the Ignite. Playing for the G League Ignite isn't that exciting. It's certainly more exciting to go play for Duke or Kansas and playing on CBS on Sundays and playing in the NCAA tournament. That is still probably a little higher level, but that's in 2021. Who's to say by 2025? Right now, the top end guys are making $500,000 a year as 18-year-olds. Who's to say by 2025 that they don't have a media rights deal with a partner and those guys are making $1.5 million? And now it's a completely different arithmetic. And so the NCAA can say whatever they want. They can pretend like, uh, you know, they can try to hold back and, 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 and keep their hands on their, their, their profit center as long as they can. I wish them the best of luck on it. Maybe they can squeeze out another five to 10 years. Good luck, gentlemen. But when this, when it becomes a truly open market and these kids are going to be able to, to, to make the most money, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to go where the money is. For people that, that don't know Brian, Brian has a, has a long and, and storied path. And I, I think it's a good transition here because LeBron James, once upon a time, right? He was not a, necessarily a global, global superstar. But Brian, you mentioned at the top, you're good at seeing, um, I don't know, seeing these trends before they happen. And now, uh, you know, that was 10 years ago with the decision. Now we're very much in the player empowerment era. So Brian, you know, we, we're talking about kind of kids seeing the, the bigger picture and looking at it. And we, uh, you know, a lot of our listeners are, are law students, college kids that are trying to figure out yeah. how to break into the sports industry. So just in the, you know, the brief amount of time we have left, Brian, uh, you know, you, you saw the path, right? You, you were at, you know, you had a, a, a local reporter, you saw LeBron and then, then, you know, you kind of saw this movement happening. So any advice you could give to kind of kids trying to break in and, and uh, maybe a little bit from uh, your own personal background? Yeah. Here's what I'd say. The, one of the greatest lessons I ever learned from LeBron was that life is long. People say life is short. Life is long. And when LeBron was 18 years old, he sat in the office at Reebok. He, 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 he went to school that day. Reebok picked him up in a car, took him to a private jet, flew him from Akron, Ohio to Boston. And he, he, Reebok didn't want him to go meet with Nike and Adidas. And they, they offered him I don't remember how much they offered him, like 60 or $70 million. And they pulled out a cashier's check for $10 million made out to him and put it on the table. And this is a kid who's 18 years old who had lived in Section 8 housing most of his life. His mother rarely had a few hundred dollars to her name. And they said, if you sign this contract with us tonight, LeBron, 
you can take this $10 million check. He, he could have gone to the bank the next morning and had $10 million. And at 18 years old, he said no, because he knew that the offers could get better. And he, and he, and he, and he said life is long. And he ended up signing with Nike. And now it's a billion, he's going to make a million dollars from Nike in his career. And sure, he's made other mistakes, but life is long. Okay. You think today things are bad, things aren't going your way or whatever. And the other thing I learned about LeBron is sometimes you take an L. Almost nobody has lost as much as LeBron has. I don't mean in the regular season. This is a guy who's had to walk away from the finals with losses over and over and over. And he throws his shoulders back and comes back the next year. And, you know, when LeBron loses a game on the road in Salt Lake City in the middle of January, he gets jeered and whatever by the crowd. He's like, all right, I took a loss tonight, but I'll, I'll be back tomorrow. And I still to this day am amazed at the perspective that he has an 18 year old. And it could be a lesson for a lot of people. Yeah. He can teach a lot of people how to play basketball. He can teach people a lesson about doing a lot of things. So uh, I really respect that. Uh, I've been amazed at his longevity, maintaining that high level, high quality level for almost 20 years. Really, he's still playing at an MVP caliber level. How much longer do you think he'll be able to, or how much longer do you think he'll play in the NBA? You know what? As long as his body holds up, who knows? I don't think it's going to be short though, Daniel. I think there's multiple years left. Brian, we, we really uh, appreciate jumping on the pod with us. Right, I do too. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and, and uh, the article, everyone, I, I recommend everyone to check it out. Top Shot, I think, is the future. And Brian, I think, has enough credibility at this point that uh, he's seeing trends ahead of time, be it the bubble, be it LeBron, and now maybe Top Shot. This might be a little bit of a GameStop opportunity, but um, this is not an investment podcast, so don't. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not recommending it. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks, Brian. Thank you very Take much, care. Brian. Be safe. Over a few minutes. Uh, great talking to you again. Thank you. Take care, guys. All right, be well. All right. Well, that wraps up our interview with ESPN's Brian Windhorst, you know, who's, you know, been, been a, you know, a preeminent writer covering, covering the league going back to the, uh, I think 2000, he's been, he's been a, been a writer for 20 years. So it's, it's, it was an illuminating conversation and uh, it was fun having him on as a guest. What did you think, Dan? I thought he was great. I, I mean, I wish we could have had him for a little bit longer, but Brian's obviously a busy man. I'm sure he's got some uh, some interviews to do, so we had to cut a little short. Yeah, I, I thought it was fantastic. And, you know, I, we've heard you guys, our feedback. You know, obviously, we we love that you guys love and we have fun with, uh, with Dan and I have fun and we bring Mike and Taryn on. But, you know, this show at its core is a, uh, a show we, we try to bring people on um, that are maybe experts in a particular field. So Brian, you know, I don't know if he called himself an NBA expert, but Brian knows a lot about the NBA and a lot of different facets as, as we saw. So, um, yeah, we're, we're going to try to do, uh, more guests in the future. We haven't done them in a, in a little bit just because of, uh, Dan, you're, you're in my time difference is a little tough for guests just because, uh, you know, it's 11 AM here by me and 11 PM by you. So we gotta, you know, we lose that chunk of the day in the middle. Yeah, but it's always fun to have guests and, um, you know, I could uh, obviously, you know, figure out the time difference uh, situation. I mean, it's really as easy when you think about a 12 hour time difference where I'm in Siberia to East Coast. We essentially have to do these these interviews uh, between 8 a.m. and 12 noon. So we'll figure it out. But I, I love having, you know, some of the writers covering the different sports on as guests. They make the most fascinating guests because they cover the sports so closely. Uh, they're very opinionated and nobody knows the topics at hand 
uh, better than they do. So in my view, they make for the best guests. And I think going back over our history in the shows, you know, our, our, I think the best, probably the only guests we've had are writers. But when I think about the shows that stand out, I'm thinking of people like Gary Myers, Ben Volin, Pat Leonard from the New York Daily News, Darren Ravel, of course. Uh, and then occasionally we interview lawyers. But when I think of someone like Darren Heitner, well, he's kind of a journalist too. But we try to pick subject matter experts in their respective disciplines. And ordinarily, they're, they're either lawyers or, or journalists. And, and you know we've had a pretty good run of guests. And hopefully, we'll, we'll be able to mix in a few more of those uh, in our upcoming shows uh, and, and do more of them rather than you know, just the, the banter between the, the different co-hosts, which I love. Uh, but it's always fun to have a guest on. Yeah. So, you know, I guess on, on that note, um, and uh, this been this past week or two has been a little bit of an eye-opening one for me. Obviously, you know, hear from a lot of law students, college kids, I'm sure Dan and I are both getting a lot of, you know, inquiries. And, you know, in our in my line of work, you know, I'd love to hire everyone that's that's super qualified, but it's just not how, you know, the industry works. So I, I think, um, you know, I implore everyone to just try to be content creators in your own right to see what radars you can get in. You know, by all means, like if I, Dan and I are going to post another like job thread looking for jobs, like put it out there as, as crazy as it sounds. And Dan, I haven't told you this, but that thread I posted about post a job, you know, post if you're interested in, um, you know, if you're looking for a legal job post here, that thread alone got like 70,000 impressions. So people are reading, wow. you know, people, people read it, you know, and, and uh, I, I know of, that a couple people have gotten jobs off of that chain. So you, you need to find ways to set yourself out. And the reason I bring this up, not a coincidence, Taryn this week, Taryn Sharma, who you guys have heard and gotten familiar with over the last couple of weeks, he started um, our own TikTok account. I'm not that active on TikTok. I like I peruse every now and then. We're at Con Detrimental there. Taryn just said, I want to start a TikTok. He did a video of Fernando Tatis. He did a video of NBA Top Shot. He did a video he did, of- He did a great job. He's done he a did. great job. I want to give Taryn a shout out. He just said, I'm going to do a video of uh, a Fernando Tatis after he signed this mega contract with the San Diego Padres. That video, right? And who's Taryn? Taryn's a, a law student like you guys, right? Taryn's video got a thousand views. So a thousand people now know who Taryn is. And Dan, as you can attest to, people are dropping in our replies saying how great Taryn is to be added to the show. You know, I think it's important. You got to separate yourself in, in some meaningful way to really make a difference. Yeah, now there's so many mediums in which to do that, whether it's, uh, you know, but I always go back to content creation. Content creation isn't necessarily, you know, tweeting. It's it's having a, you know, a point of view and being able to uh, advance it with, you know, some some writing behind it and, and, and thoughtful views that uh, you can put onto paper, maybe publish. I mean, look at what your article on Kevin Durant generated, all the kind of enthusiasm around that. And, and uh, you know, all the attention that I get in the sports betting space, it all started with like writing and content creation. I didn't start on Twitter. It seems like I did, but uh, it, it, it all began with the, um, uh, you know, the, the writing around an issue that I was very passionate about and, and the persistence and just staying with that and, and never letting go of it. Uh, it, it, it doesn't come, it doesn't come overnight. It, it, it took a little while. That wasn't my goal. I was always passionate about the topic, but you created content your own way. I have in, in a somewhat different way. Taryn uh, now is sort of getting the hang of it. Mike is, and, uh, and I, I think there's a lesson there to, to be learned, but it's, you know, I guess to steal from some of today's episode, you got to trust the process and you're not going to have overnight results. But if you have the process in mind and, 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 and work really hard and diligently at it and, and uh, put in the time, 
effort and you have a, a point of view, um, I, I think you'll I, not only will you get noticed, but you know you could become an expert in a particular area. Because uh, I'm self, you know, I, I think uh, no one made me a sports betting lawyer or a sports lawyer. I kind of created that over the course of time without anybody's permission or consent or or demand. I just I just did it because I, I I cared so deeply about the topic and I was having fun with it. And imagine taking a like a, a legal discipline or any kind of skill you have and applying it to something that you think is fun. I mean, that's what it's all about. And I never thought I would be in this position. Seven years ago, seven years ago, I didn't see any path into into anything like this. You know, it was essentially, you know, marking time or counting time. So, to the extent that you could uh, find something you're passionate about and and uh, you know have fun with it and use your talents as a lawyer in either writing about it or developing uh, some content, I think I think over time uh, you can make some some headway. So uh, I think, you know, Dan, uh, I think you and I have uh, shared thoughts and I, I echo everything Dan said. So um, we'll send this home. Um, if you joined us uh, for the first time for this episode for Brian Windhorst, we implore all of you to subscribe to the podcast. Yeah, uh, all things sports and law. Uh, and uh, we have a lot of fun doing it. So uh, with that said, Dan Wallach is on uh, social media at Wallach Legal. Myself, Dan Lust at Sports Law Lust. Um, the show is at Con Detrimental again, now on TikTok for those TikTokers. Pleasure as always. I look forward to uh, joining you again next week for our next episode. So uh, thanks again, everybody, for joining us. We'll see you next week.